0: Good morning. The reading today is taken from the book of Mark, chapter 9. I'll be reading from verses 14 to 29. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth and Jesus asked his father how long has this been happening to him and he said from childhood and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him but if you can do anything have compassion on us and help us and Jesus said to him if you can all things are possible For one who believes and immediately the father of the child cried out and said i believe help my unbelief and when jesus saw that a crowd came running together he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it you mute and deaf spirit i command you come out of him and never enter him again and after crying out and convulsing him terribly it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that many of them said he is dead but jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had entered the house his disciples asked him privately why could we not cast it out and he said to them this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: One of my favorite movies is Spike Lee's production of Malcolm X. It's a gripping portrayal of the life of one of the most consequential black leaders of the 20th century. But one of the heart-wrenching truths that is revealed in the story is that Malcolm X, the man who would become the most effective spokesman and recruiter for the Nation of Islam, was driven to Islam in part by the failure of the church. Malcolm's father was a black preacher who was not afraid to speak the truth of Scripture to the power of a Jim Crow culture. But not only did the Ku Klux Klan terrorize his family in the night, letting them know that the good white Christians would not stand for his father's troublemaking, they ended up murdering his father, resulting in the complete breakdown of Malcolm's family. People who believed that they were acting in accord with the faith ended up being the ones who betrayed it most deeply. In every age and in every cultural moment, Christians must honestly reckon with the failures of the church. If we are to have a shred of integrity to our profession, if we are to enjoy real assurance of our belonging to God, if we are to bear fruit, then we must face our failures and respond accordingly. Our calling requires it. Our mission demands it. And in our passage for today, we get helpful direction for some healthy self-examination that is incredibly relevant to our cultural moment. So let's take a look at Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. And we're going to approach this text through three points where we see the failure of the disciples, the struggle of our neighbors, and the faithfulness of Christ. So let's take a look at our first point where we see the failure of the disciples. Now, if you have been with us as we've been working through the gospel of Mark, uh, you can appreciate by now the importance of understanding each of the passages that we are dealing with in the context of the broader story that Mark is telling about Jesus. And when it comes to understanding our passage for today, you have to go back to the reality of Jesus' calling on the lives of the disciples. Earlier on in Mark's gospel, Jesus has given his disciples a mission. He's given them a mission. And you get a sense of it in both Mark chapter chapter 3 and in Mark chapter 6. And according to those passages that we covered earlier, this was the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. Here's what Mark chapter 3 verses 14 through 15 say. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them to preach and have authority to cast out demons. That's what Mark chapter 3 says about the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. And that is reiterated, that mission is reiterated in in chapter 6 when it says this, and he called the twelve And began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And we are told that when they went out, they proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. And what we learn from these passages is not only the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples. But we also learned that the disciples enjoyed a successful ministry up to this point. They were casting out demons. They were miraculously healing the sick and preaching the gospel and calling people to repent. If I could contemporize it, the disciples had lots of people coming to church. Hundreds of people were coming forward during the altar call. Their college ministry was booming. They had name recognition and a platform. But something had gone terribly wrong on this day. The text tells us in Mark chapter 9 what went wrong. And if you look at Jesus' reflection, his exclamation in verse 19, he exclaims, Faithless generation! And at the end of the passage, when the disciples get the the post-game interview with Jesus, he tells them of their prayerlessness. After their public humiliation, the disciples are still embarrassed and confused about how they failed after having earlier success in their ministry. And so they're following up with Jesus after the event, right? Right? And the disciples question Jesus about why they couldn't do it. Why couldn't they help this father and his his son? Why why couldn't they do it? And what the disciples are looking for is a refresher on the ministry mechanics of healing. They're looking for the practical how-to questions. And these are the most pressing things in their minds. The how-to, the mechanics. They're looking for a quick fix For their ministry. But but Jesus, in his reply, is surprising because his reply tells us that the disciples' problem was not mechanical or practical. It was a heart problem, a doxological problem. When Jesus expresses his frustration with his disciples, with this faithless generation, And later, when he tells the disciples that this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, he's not just talking about faith and prayer as the point of failure. He's also talking about an entire disposition of their hearts. He's he's exposing them. He's revealing them. Because faith and prayer are often ciphers for communion with God that results in knowing God's heart being in tune with God's ways in the world, seeing the world like God sees the world so that we can act in the world accordingly. We we get the sense from Jesus' reply, from Jesus' diagnosis, we get the sense from this passage that in a very short time of doing ministry, the disciples have become self-reliant and proud. They've become intoxicated with power and influence. And they are more grieved at their loss of control than they are at misrepresenting the kingdom. This was the failure of the disciples. This was the failure. But this failure of the disciples has reappeared in our cultural moment we see the same failure in the broader American evangelical church. The church as a whole has been brought into incredible shame in the eyes of our neighbors. Not because the church has told the world inconvenient truths, but because the church has supported politically convenient lies. The American evangelical church has arrived here because it has become self-reliant and proud it has become intoxicated with power and influence the american evangelical church is currently more grieved at the loss of political control than it is at having misrepresented the kingdom through religious syncretism and the fallout the fallout is that it is now All the more difficult for our neighbors to tell the difference between historic Orthodox Christianity and this political theater that has been written, produced, and directed by professing Christians. I know Christians aren't the only ones involved in this debacle, but Christians, self-professed Christians, are involved in this mess. For our neighbors... There was no discernible difference between the cross and the flag down on the National Mall last week. For our neighbors, the resurrection has been obscured by insurrection. For our neighbors, Father, Son, and Spirit have been overshadowed by an ecclesiastical three-ring circus. Each and every one of us must own our failures and take responsibility for the ways in which we have obscured the kingdom for our neighbors. We can talk all the mission language we want, but if we are not willing to face our failures on these fronts, it's all pantomime. This is not a partisan thing. It's not a partisan issue. It is a missiological issue. It has to do with our calling, our sending from God to our world, to our neighbors. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. We need to see that the disciples' failure is grievous, not only from the perspective of personal piety, but from the perspective of its negative impact on the very neighbors that we have been called to love and serve. And that brings us to our second point, the struggle of our neighbors. The failure of the disciple, the disciples leads to an exacerbation of the struggles of our neighbors. Now, take a look at this passage. I want to paint a picture of the father's experience with his son. This man has brought his son to the disciples. And we're told in the text that this, that this little boy was possessed by a demon. And this, this resulted in all kinds of dangers to his very life. And his, his father has, has dealt with this since, since the beginning of his boy's life. Think about the problem. The problem is lifelong. When Jesus asks him how long it's been going on, he says, since his birth it's it's an emotionally disturbing problem think about it imagine seeing your child rolling around in a fire or or having to pull your child up out of the water as he gasps for breath this problem is physically destructive when the father looked at his son he could probably see scars and disfigurement on his boy from previous episodes It was socially disruptive. It put them on the outs in their community. They probably felt every eye staring at them when an episode broke out. They heard the whispers behind their backs. They probably felt unwelcomed and lonely all the time, chronically. The problem was insurmountable. By this time, the father has tried everything that somebody of that culture would try. He's gone to doctors. He has tried to wear protective amulets. He has tried magic incantations. Nothing has worked. But here's what we need to see his encounter with the disciples makes his struggle all the more difficult. The the father pushes through the crowd with his son, his last shred of hope hanging in the balance. He presents the case. The crowd and and everyone surrounding, they're eagerly looking on, waiting to see what would happen. They've seen the disciples handle something like this in the past. So they're, they're looking on expectantly. And then one of the disciples moves toward the boy lays his hand on him and nothing happens nothing happens and once again this father's hopes for his son's recovery are crushed he expected the disciples to heal him he expected the disciples to be of some help. He expected these Jesus people to be able to aid him in his time of need. These commissioned representatives of Jesus were supposed to be able to carry out their master's work. There's something that we need to pay attention to in the man's statement. When when Jesus finally arrives on the scene and begins to engage with this man, The man says to Jesus, if you can do anything, that's not insignificant. We shouldn't pass that by. We need to understand what's happening here, what's being revealed to us in that that statement of this father. If you can do anything, Jesus. You see, the man's previous encounter with the disciples makes him doubtful and cynical about Jesus. Jesus. His experience with the church folk decreases his confidence in the power of Jesus. The failures of the disciples made the father hesitant about Jesus himself. This is the situation of many of our neighbors today. Their experiences with the church, with the representatives of Jesus have left them doubtful and cynical about Jesus himself. And I find it absolutely astonishing that for all of their criticisms of Christians, many of our non-Christian neighbors expect better from us. They actually expect us to behave like people who believe in the cross and the resurrection. That is astonishing to me. That our neighbors want us to live up into the story we claim. They want us to live up into the faith, hope, and love that we profess. They want us to be a, a truer reflection of the one we say we follow. Do you see what the Gospel of Mark is doing? Mark is forcing church folks, professing Christians, to ask themselves, A tough question which version of Jesus do religious outsiders receive from your life which version of Jesus do they get from you it could be the slot machine Jesus who's really there when you need something you kind of input your prayers you get what you want and then you go on about your way it could be the slot machine Jesus Maybe it's the fire insurance Jesus who, you know, you believed back in junior high, you went to a a youth group meeting and you felt the quiver in your liver and all of a sudden, you know, you felt like you were a Christian from that point on, but there has been no discernible marks of discipleship in your life since then. But, you know, you expect that at the end of the day, all dogs go to heaven. Do they get the fire insurance Jesus from you? The crown without a cross? Or maybe they get the country club Jesus from you? You know... The Jesus who, you know, he likes the people who are, you know, decent people who pay their taxes and 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 they're basically kind and friendly to the people around them. I, I mean, you know, the version of Jesus who he likes the tidied up type of person. He's not really interested in dealing with the poor. You know, he wants them to get their act together. You know, after all, it's their own fault that they got there in the first place. Right. You know, so they need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and be more like me. Do they get the country club Jesus? Do they get the Jesus draped in the American flag? The patriot Jesus? You know, the the, the Jesus that we see on some of the posters out there that looks more like Rambo than the suffering servant. Do we get the libertine Jesus who espouses some amorphous idea of love, love is love, and, and he has no moral backbone. He has no ethical hard lines about right and wrong, Which Jesus are you giving to your neighbors? Are you giving them the Jesus of Scripture, the full picture, the whole story? This is the question that Mark wants followers to ask of themselves. You understand that that, that our responsibility when it comes to the, the penetrating questions of Scripture is not to get self-defensive and and to self-justify, but to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that in due time He may restore and exalt us. We don't get to pick what we want Scripture to mean as followers of Jesus. We don't get to edit. We are not His divine editors. We must receive the word implanted. We must let the scalpel of Scripture Cut away the rottenness within so that we may be a better good to the world. This is the word that comes to us from Mark as religious insiders. Mark wants Christians to ask themselves, what version of Jesus we're giving to our neighbors? But also, this is important, and I hope that you friends who have been joining us who wouldn't necessarily call yourselves Christians we're, again, we're so grateful that you are with us. We are so thankful that you have tuned in with us. We want you to know there's no other place we'd rather you be than with us. We're so grateful for you. We want you to know that Scripture does not talk about you as if you aren't tuned in. Mark the evangelist wants you to, to wrestle with something as well. He wants all those who are investigating the life of Jesus to consider this challenging consideration. He wants to to challenge you to look beyond the failures and misrepresentations of his people to see him. He's challenging you to look beyond the media caricatures and even the times where media is accurate. He wants you to look beyond the anecdotal stories of Christian failure and church hurt to see him he wants you to understand that there is a distinction between the church and Jesus even though Jesus lives in intimate union with his people he wants you to understand that his church has many failures and flaws but he does not there's a reason why the church is filled with such broken and sinful and and messed up people It's because we need a Savior. And the good news is that Jesus invites people like us to himself, people like you. You know, the church is more like a hospital than a country club. There are all kinds of people with all kinds of afflictions represented who are drawn to Jesus, that Jesus has drawn to himself. But Jesus does not want you, friends, to miss what's happening in the text. The the scriptures aren't shy about the failures of individual Christians and the failures of the church as a whole in different pockets of the world at times. But the scriptures are also clear about the unique hope that there is in Jesus. As you deal with Jesus, make sure you're dealing with the Jesus of Scripture. Make sure you're dealing with Jesus according to Scripture and the global historic witness of the church. But let's return to the Father in our passage. Due to the failure of the disciples, the Father seems to be under the impression that Jesus can't do that much more Than his disciples were able to do. But he figures that a little help is better than no help at all. Maybe Jesus can give the situation a boost. But here's the reality Jesus doesn't come to give the situation a boost. We don't need a pick me up. We don't need a shot in the arm. We don't need a sidekick. We don't need a little assistance. We need a savior, we need rescue. And we can't hear that enough because we constantly forget it. What do you do when you run into the tough scenarios of life, no matter what they may be? Do you take an if-you-can approach to Jesus? If you can, Jesus, will you help me to resist this sin in my life? If you can, Jesus, will you help me to overcome the anxiety that floods my mind? If you can, Jesus, will you help me to meet my financial obligations and be a giver? If you can, Jesus, will will you help us to love people who are different from us? If you can, Jesus, will, will you help the American church to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with you? Listen, if you consider the entire sweep of Scripture, the entire scope of God's story, you will see a number of needy people giving up on the if-you-can Jesus and walking into the fullness of God. Abraham let go of if-you-can and became the father of a nation in his old age. Moses let go of if-you-can and parted a Red Sea to lead God's people to freedom. David let go of if you can, and he united God's people under God's rule. Daniel let go of if you can, and he enjoyed rest and peace in the face of danger and calamity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego let go of if you can, and they survived the fiery furnace that was meant to destroy them. The apostles let go of, if you can, and they spread the gospel of God's grace all of the, over the world through word and deed. And the question for us is, what would happen in our lives, in our ministries, in our city, if we let go of, if you can, Jesus? That story is not finished yet. But after hearing Jesus' reply, This father makes an incredibly insightful request. Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. And immediately the father shoots back in desperation, in in, in a form of prayer. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you see that? It's a beautiful paradox. You, you You can call it a prayer, but the Father is on to something crucial for Christian spirituality, and it's this. Belief and unbelief are mixed in all of us. None of us has red-hot faith around the clock. But the presence of doubt does not necessarily indicate the absence of faith. Think about it. Think about it. A few examples. As Christians, we believe that God is in control but we flip out when our plans go awry and things don't happen according to our timing. You know what you need to say? I believe, help my unbelief. We believe that God is our provider, but when our savings takes a hit due to unexpected circumstances or the job market is looking kind of bad, we get anxious and start trying to figure out how to make more. You know what you need to say at those times? I believe, but help my unbelief. We believe that our identity is found in Christ as Christians, but we often prostitute ourselves to political parties and kill ourselves to gain the approval of others. You know what we need to say? I believe, but help my unbelief. We believe that God is for us. But when things don't go according to plan in our our timing, we grow cynical and hopeless. You know what we need to say to the Lord? I believe, but help my unbelief. The father gives a full disclosure of his faith battle. He, He essentially says, I have doubts, Jesus. I know your reputation, but I'm struggling, Jesus. I know what your word says, but I'm having a hard time, Jesus. I know your promises, but I'm struggling, Lord. Help my unbelief. That's that's a word for us in our cultural moment. We need Jesus to help our unbelief. There is a, a desperation and honesty to this man's words. But the most important thing for us to see is that the man moved from help my child to help my unbelief because that was at the bottom of it all. He moved from the immediate situation to the heart of the matter, trusting in Jesus. And isn't it encouraging that even his lingering doubts are no barrier? To the kindness of Jesus. Even his lingering doubts don't prevent Jesus from acting on his behalf. His faith finds a resting place in Jesus, small though it may be. In fact, the the faith and the prayer that was absent in the disciples is now on display in this Father. It's a beautiful juxtaposition. He cries for help honestly confessing the poverty of his faith. And Jesus answers not according to the poverty of the man's faith, but according to the riches of his own grace. Don't you know that God does not answer according to the poverty and insufficiency of your faith? He answers according to the riches of his own grace. He answers according to his commitment to you in the gospel. So good is he. And that leads us to our final point where we see the faithfulness of Christ. Listen, Mark doesn't want us to be stuck on the failure of the disciples then or the failure of disciples now. He doesn't even want us to be stuck on the struggle of this father in the passage. He wants us to see the faithfulness of Christ to us all in response to their failure and misrepresentation of his name other friends would have would have cut them off their love would have grown cold in response to this father's mixed trust others would have recoiled unable to get over the offense now now, i want you I want you to think about it. Just imagine if you told your spouse or your closest friend, "I kind of trust you, but deep down, I don't really trust you. Could you imagine the damage it would do to the relationship? Could you imagine how it would create distance in the relationship? Some of your relationships wouldn't wouldn't recover from that statement? But Mark is showing us that we can come home to Jesus because he is faithful. Through Jesus' ministry to the Father and his boy, we learn that his mercies are evergreen. His grace is perennial. He is a fountain of unchangeable affection and sympathy for the broken and desperate. He doesn't despise us for our struggles with doubt He knows that it's his love that will heal that doubt, and he pours it out lavishly. He is a burden-lifting, tear-drying comforter who feels your pains and soothes your sorrows. He told this father that all things are possible for the one who believes. But we saw the true scope of faith's possibility when Jesus submitted to death at the cross and then rose to conquer it in his resurrection. And through Jesus' ministry to his disciples, we see his kindness even to failures who have misrepresented him. We're even reminded by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. He is patient in his teaching and swift in his pardon as we come to him to learn the way of the kingdom, to repent of our sin and folly, and to understand what it looks like to return to his path. The faithfulness of Jesus does not mean that we are exempt from God's fatherly discipline. He will confront his people with his truth, and he will deal with those who are not his but bear his name and bring shame upon his name. The scriptures tell us vengeance is mine. Says the Lord, I will repay. I will deal with it. It is according to the wisdom of God that he allows the wheat and the tares to grow up together. He allows real believers and false believers to inhabit the same spaces. He will separate the sheep from the goats in the end. That is not our job. That is not our job as, angered as we may be, righteously so, by the way in which Christian witness was damaged over, not only over the last four years, but over the last 40 years and over the last 400 years by those who claim the name of Jesus. This this last week's episode was just the most recent iteration of a, a long line of professing Christians who have brought shame on the name of Christ because they have failed to be true to what the scriptures say the way of the church is to be in the world. That's just the facts of it. God will deal with his people. But what, what it does mean is that he will never disown his beloved children, even when severe discipline and severe mercies are required for our good. Severe mercies, like having to endure public embarrassment for having made evil pacts in the pursuit of power and influence. He will deal with his people in discipline and at times severe discipline and severe mercy, but he will never disown his people. And that is good news. As we continue to aim for missionary faithfulness in our cultural moment, we must remember the big picture of this passage. The failure of the disciples does not stop Jesus from meeting this father's need with mercy and healing. In other words, even in our failure, Jesus will not be deterred in his plan to cover this earth with his glory to spread his love widely to draw many into the kingdom from every tribe and every tongue and every nation he will make it happen and though the american church may be awash in a multitude of failures right now we are not the sum total of god's church he will always have a witness. He will preserve witness to his name. And it may be that the global church has to come in and clean up our mess. It may be in the next generation with our children of our church. We, we don't know, but we can have confidence that Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let us, in response to this passage, commit ourselves to kingdom truth over political power, even though it may cost us, vocationally even. And and let us think about our failures with respect to our neighbors. And where necessary, confess and ask their forgiveness. Perhaps the most powerful thing we can do to bear witness to our neighbors right now is to confess our failures, and our erroneous convictions and ask our neighbors for forgiveness for the ways we have wounded them and hurt them inadvertently. And finally, we need to fearlessly submit to communal accountability in the context of difference. The only way we will avoid self-delusions and echo chambers is if we listen to brothers and sisters who inhabit a different space than we do in the church and put our convictions before them and where they identify idolatry and error, we need to submit and repent and then repair and return to the Lord's way. Let us remember that we are a people of hope and our hope is not in this worldly kingdoms. It's not a trite thing to say that we must remember that Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. We are sojourners, but we must be faithful sojourners, faithful to our God, faithful to our neighbors, and let us remember that he will remain faithful to us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for the sting of Scripture. And we ask that you would help us to receive this word with humility. Help us to receive the word. Help us not to view your word through a a partisan lens so that we can filter out the inconvenient parts. But let us hear it. Let us receive it. And we pray, Spirit, that you would convict us, that you would change us, that you would help us to be a holy people. Help us to live as your treasured possession, your people that has been been called to bear witness to your manifold excellencies. Help us to turn our hearts to you. Help us to be a counter witness to the false witness of our age. And Lord, we ask that you would heal our land. We pray that you would help us as your church to be faithful in this moment. We pray for protection over our city. We pray that you would protect our neighbors from violence and those who would work evil in our city under false pretenses. Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray that the witness of your church would be revived in due time, not because we have successfully seized power, not because we have successfully controlled the narrative, but because we have humbly repented for our error and our grievous ways and we have returned to you in a spirit of humility and brokenness. Lord, we pray that you would have your way in your church. We pray that you would do this for your own glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.